Jesus said, It is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. I pray to you, Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's a pleasure to be back again and to see you all, and to actually be serving with your rector, who is always away whenever I come. It's making my job this morning very easy. The gospel passage we have for this Sunday, which starts out as I just started my sermon, has been interpreted in a variety of ways down through the ages. These interpretations often have mistaken this parable for an allegory, and there is a difference. The parable was a fairly common way of teaching, often used in rabbinical teaching. The allegory was a common form of teaching in the Hellenistic tradition, the Greco-Roman world. The parable was designed to make one point, often in an entertaining way via an all-too-human story. The allegory was supposed to have many different elements, often seen as part of the whole message, in some cases as a kind of code containing secrets dispensed by Jesus for our salvation if only one could reveal their hidden meaning. Over time, the allegorical approach of interpreting the parables increased as the distance of time increased from the days starting with the followers of the way who were almost entirely Jewish when a parable was a parable and becoming increasingly allegorical as the members of the church became more Greco-Roman. From the second century to the 19th century, it was assumed the parables were in fact all allegory, and that every aspect of them had some kind of spiritual and or moral significance. It has even infected the parables themselves, as in the somewhat torturous interpretation of the sower parable in Mark's gospel. You may remember the seed, some of which fell on trodden path, and some which fell on the rocky soil, and some fell on the thistles, each representing supposedly different types of hearers. Parables were not meant to be handled in this way. They were usually designed to make one central point, making that point as part of an all-too-true story of life. And that point was more closely related to the situation on the ground, as they say, when Jesus was preaching. The point of the parable was a core teaching that could be reflected in the life of Jesus when one took into account who he was and to whom he was speaking and under what circumstances. As the distance over time increased between the original parables and those who were interpreting them, you get more elaborate explanations of their meaning, offering a particularly fertile field for their imaginations, that is, the imaginations of the interpreters, as one source I consulted put it. This particular, this particular parable we have this morning, if seen primarily as a parable, is more likely to have been spoken to the representatives of official Judaism in Christ's day, representing Christ's condemnation of the long-standing policy of safeguarding the Jewish tradition 
at the cost or failure to fulfill the mission of Judaism in the world. For the small Jewish nation, as it was surrounded by many other tribes and beliefs, the danger was seen always as their losing their uniqueness, rather than the danger of burying their religious treasure in the ground or some other hiding place from the rest of the world. The author I consulted on this noted that our church may be in danger of doing the same thing by being more concerned about its purity of piety than entering into the messy and multiple phases and fascinations of the nature of the world outside the walls of the church. I must say that the Episcopal Church, in my view, is much less likely to do this in comparison with all other current denominations. I think we are the leaders in ecumenism and have merged with more churches, I believe, than any other. Currently, we are in full communion with the Moravian Church and the United Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and we're now even talking seriously with the Methodists, because after all, the two priests who founded the Methodist faith were Anglican clergy. In fact, about a month ago, I received a call from a Lutheran church in Connecticut wanting, to me, wanting me to be their supply priest for a Sunday service. When I reminded them that I was an Episcopalian, because um, I, I was wondering if they maybe, were, maybe made a mistake or didn't know what they were doing, they remarked that they knew that I was an Episcopalian, but they would show me the ropes before the service. <laughs> Things are changing. And I have a hunch it is for the better. Even though these changes are anxiety producing, yes, for me, and I suspect for others as well. But hiding one's head in the sand never worked very well anyway. Doing so is awfully hard on the breathing to say nothing about the eyes. <laughs> Having said the above about parables, I think of the parable we have for our study this morning as having a great deal to do with the necessity of taking seriously God's gifts to each of us and to use them even though we might be afraid of losing them. For surely to not use them is to lose them. The man of our parable has given his servants money in the hope that they will be fruitful and multiply the money. I suggest that God does the same thing to us. He asks us to recognize his gifts to us, and in our gratitude for these gifts and for his trust in us, we use them for his purposes. And what of the one who hid his gift? Well, let's take a close look at that strange sentence that reads, For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What does this have to do with the parable? I mean, was the point of the parable that those servants who have, already, who have some already will have more than before? Or was it for the master to have more? And secondly, the one servant who didn't use his buried it. That servant, in effect, in effect did have some gifts given to him. It wasn't that he didn't have any gifts. It's just that he didn't actually use it. So again, what does that enigmatic phrase have to do with anything? As far as the servant being worthless is concerned, in my view, as I look at the entire life of Jesus, 
I don't ever recall Jesus saying that anyone was worthless, ever, no matter how much the provocation, but rather reminding everyone of how much God loved them and, as similar to a good parent with regard to his children, how much God loves the lives of everyone with whom the disciples had contact. And then there is the outer darkness matter. Hmm. Well, first, what about inner darkness? Which seems more to the point. But second, there is the matter of the darkness, just the darkness itself. Let's take a look at Thessalonians, which is our epistle reading. It is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, record in the New Testament. If the New Testament had been arranged such that the records written earliest with regard to the life of Jesus would be the first books, then the first Thessalonians would be the first book of the New Testament instead of the Gospel of Matthew. Because it's the earliest records we have in the New Testament. And what does it say? But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So how come this servant in our parable is being thrown into the darkness because he was afraid? Would that not make him more afraid? Is that what God is up to, making people more afraid? Sending him into the darkness where the real thieves live would not be very healthy. And finally in the parable, why didn't the servant who was afraid ask for help from the other servants? Why didn't he go to the other servants, who clearly are more at ease with money than he was, and ask for assistance? Is this some kind of race or contest regarding who is better? Or would asking the other servants for help be cheating as if it was some kind of test? Well, these are some of the unanswered questions might, one might ask about this parable if we were treating it as an allegory. It illustrates my point. The parables are not allegories primarily, and their meaning is usually limited to one central point, which in this case, I believe, is this. God, being the master of all of us, wants us to use the gifts he has given us. First, to develop them, and then use them so as to carry forth his loving purpose in the world, so that all people will know God and Jesus Christ our Lord, whom God has sent. Amen.